We're in Exodus, Exodus chapter 14 uh, this morning, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. The ten plagues have been, uh, the burning bush has been, and now what will happen to the Israelites as they leave Egypt. Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord." So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that he will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of the cloud, pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so that neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. 
During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. Amen. I wonder if I asked you how patient you are, what your response would be. There's just a few smiles already, so maybe <laughs> not the best answers. Maybe you're, you're, you really struggle with being patient when times are tough. Um, how about then if I asked you how calm are you? When troubles come, when you're under pressure, maybe in work you've got deadlines or whatever it may be, how calm are you there? Or how trusting are you in those to help you and, and those to get things done? Again, I'm sure we could answer all of these and there would be something like, yeah, I'm all right, but not as good as I could be. Trying to make ourselves look better, I'm sure. That's what my answers would be anyway. I ask those questions because those questions could be asked of the Israelites in this passage. Where, are we, where do we find ourselves? We're, we're in Exodus 14 and Exodus is the book of rescue, a book of salvation. The, uh, the Egyptians have enslaved the Israelites. They are there working without pay. They are beaten. They are under awful circumstances. And, and time and time again, they cry out to God to save them. And God hears them. And he sends Moses. He speaks to Moses through the burning bush. He goes then with God's command and with what God has given him to Pharaoh. And then you have the repeated phrase, let my people go. And time and time again we read that Pharaoh says no. And so then, after the warnings, come the consequences. The plagues, the ten plagues that completely decimate the Egyptian culture. The Israelites, when the plagues are over, are allowed to leave. Pharaoh says, go. And so they go. And not only do they go on their own, but the Egyptians pay them to leave. That's how much they want them gone. And they leave. And, and they're praising God. And, and they leave behind destruction. There's barely anything left, left of Egypt at this point. And the people, having seen this and are trusting God, and out they go, marching home. 
And so we're going to look at this passage, we're going to go through it um, verse by verse, and just to give us some structure, I've split this into two. In verses 1 to 18, we can call it the talk of the people, and verses 19 to the end of the passage, we can call it the deliverance of the Lord. If you're writing notes, that might help. Anyway, the talk of the people, verses 1 to 18. Like we said, Israel are marching out. They, they, are, they are leaving behind the place where they were slaves. They are going home, the promised land. And a few days into their journey, God speaks to them. God speaks to Moses. And then verse 2, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal, Zephon. What? What? No, they're going direct. They're going uh, north-easterly. That's where they want to go. And God has directed them south. There's no bridge. There's no cruise ship that they can get on. No, what, where are they going? God decides to lead them along the long route with no apparent destination. And so he tells them to encamp by Pi Hieroth and by Migdal opposite Baal Zephon. And I'm sure we can really want to know where exactly the Israelites camped, where exactly they crossed the sea, but we can't. There's debate over this. Um, Migdal was a, was a title used for a lot of uh, towers. I think that's the direct translation. Towers and cities in the area. So we can't use Migdal. And Baal Zephon and Pihiroth are no help either. So we can't place exactly where they crossed. So then that leads some debate and confusion. There's debate. Well... Did the Israelites actually cross the Red Sea or did they go much further north to a little lake that was very shallow and they actually just walked through a little puddle? And the answer to that is, who do you believe? Do you believe the scientists that say God could not possibly split the sea or do you believe God? I'm inclined to believe God, but if you don't, then come speak to me later and we can have a talk about this. But there is debate over this subject all the time, and yet the Bible says they crossed through the Red Sea with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left, and so that's what I'm inclined to believe. And since Jesus believed the Old Testament, and I trust Jesus, I'm going to go with that one. But these little problems and debates show up all the time and an example of this is a, a story I was reading a few weeks ago and it's about an American congregation and they had a very liberal pastor and he was leading them through this very passage and at one point in the service a man cries out praise God that he led the children safely through the parted sea and the pastor frowns and he shakes his head and he says, no, I'm sorry, no. He, there was no miracle. There was no parting of the Red Sea. They actually were much further north in this bitter lake, it's called. Uh, and they, the tide was out, so they walked through maybe only six inches of water. Undeterred, the man who shouted out at the beginning shouts out again, praise God that he would drown all the Egyptians in six inches of water. There's lots of problems but if God truly is God he can do anything 
and parting the Red Sea is nothing. Anyway, not only does he tell them to encamp opposite Baal-Zephon, he also tells them that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh will want to chase them. They've only just escaped him, and now God says, actually, I'm going to make Pharaoh chase you. And we don't really get a response from Moses other than the Israelites did what God told them to. And they encamped by Pi-Hiroth and Migdal. Pharaoh then is told, the Israelites have gone. And obviously he knows they've gone, he told them to go. But now it real, the realisation sets in, what have we done? What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services, verse 5 says. And they are right. They should be worried. This is a, a, a key uh, period in the time of Egypt, they are becoming a superpower if they aren't already a superpower, and superpowers need workers, and in that time, well, what better than slaves? And they just lost the Israelites. And it wasn't 500 Israelites. It wasn't a 1,000 Israelites. Earlier in the book of Exodus, we are told 600,000 men of the Israelites marched out. So you do the maths and you put women and children in there, you've got maybe two million. That is a sizable workforce that you have just lost. And not only have you lost it, you've lost it in the face of your entire country being destroyed. He is right to be concerned. And so Pharaoh then, having realized what he does, he gathers all the chariots of Egypt... And chases after them. And not only with chariots, but with horsemen and foot soldiers too. A great army has massed. The Israelites have been told, Egypt will follow. There is going to be problems ahead. And what is interesting, back in verse 4... God says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. In the original language, the word know there is not know by seeing, is not know by understanding, it is know by experience. So, in other words, the Egyptians will know by experience that I am the Lord. God is setting everything up. And so we get back to the Israelites and their camps by Pi-Hiroth. And you can imagine they've set up their tents. They've been there maybe a few days already. Children are playing in the waters. There's some men are probably lounging around and sorting out their tans or something. I don't know what they would do in this spare time. But they're set up and they're camped. And then one day, just after the evening meal, they look up and the area along that coast uh, is a quick drop into, towards the sea. So they were probably encamped just above. So, but they look across and on the horizon, there's a dust cloud. And then the dust cloud gets bigger and bigger, and bigger, and then there's a shadow of, of, of something moving across the desert, 
And then it comes closer and they can see its people. And then it's closer and they can see its chariots. And then they can see the headdresses and the banners of the Egyptians. There they are. And they have nowhere to go. And so what what do they do? What do they do? Having just seen the ten plagues and God's mighty power, what do they do? They cry out to God. That's what it says in verse 10. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. And then what does verse 11 say? They turned on Moses. The the ground hasn't opened and, and swallowed the Egyptians. Lightning hasn't struck them from heaven. There's no immediate answer, so, well, let's target Moses. And boy, do they target Moses. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that we had to be brought out to the desert to die? Do you not care? Are we just sheep to be slaughtered? What's going on? And it's very easy for us to look at that and say, what are they doing? How could they say such things? And yet, I'm sure you can think of some time in the past few weeks where you weren't quite so patient, you weren't quite so calm, and you weren't quite so trusting. Normally, I give a a different example uh, of my own life from a, a, a year ago. Actually, I need only think of last night. I tried to print my sermon off, and my printer wasn't working, and oh boy, was I in bits. I, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. I wasn't trusting, I wasn't calm, and I wasn't patient. I was ready to throw the printer out the window. Thankfully, I didn't. I've got them in front of me. But that was last night, and it's a printer. These guys are facing death. We are just the same as them. Let's not be so quick to judge them. But that doesn't make what they do right either. What do they do? They, they question Moses. And they not only question Moses, they question God. Their, their language is sarcastic and patronizing and filled with I told you so language. You see, they do not doubt the power of God. They've seen that. That's why they cry out to God to begin with. They doubt the goodness of God. God, the the mighty, powerful one, destroyed the Egyptians, and and now we follow him, and he's just led us out into the desert to die. That is what they are saying. They are questioning the goodness of God. And so likewise, when we doubt and when we fear, we too question the goodness of God. Moses' reply, you may think, is, wow, what an amazing man of grace. He tells them, don't be afraid, it's all right. He calms them down, he's very gentle with them. No, in the original language, it's a command to be silent. In other words, he tells them to shut up. He doesn't answer their empty questions, he doesn't deal with their accusations, no. He says, be still, be quiet, and watch what the Lord will do for you today. All of it shall be done by the Lord. You need only be still, and after all, you can't do anything anyway. There's no way you can get out of this situation. And then we have a strange interaction. Then in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? 
And you may think, well, that's very strange. Why is God turning on Moses? Moses hasn't said anything. We don't have a record of Moses saying anything to God. What's going on? Exodus is a book pointing forward and structuring for the future, if you'd like. God, through Exodus, is shaping the Israelites into the nation they will be. He is putting things in place so that things will work when they get to the promised land. And so what we see here is the system that will go forward. Moses is a mediator. He brings God to the people. God speaks to Moses, and Moses speaks to the people. And God uses Moses. That's why we see it is Moses is the one who holds out his staff over the waters, and they turn to blood. It is he who stretches out his hand over the sea, and it is parted. God doesn't need Moses, but God is using Moses to show the people that God is with Moses. But also in, it works in the reverse. Moses brings the people to God. When the people fail in a few chapters' time and they make the golden calf and they worship it and, and, and Moses goes down and he deals with it and he makes them eat this gold dust that he grinds down. And God then says, I will destroy this people. Moses is the one who goes to their defense. Moses brings the people to God and God to the people. That's how this relationship works. And so the rebuke for the people is told to Moses. But it is a very short rebuke. And then God tells Moses to raise your staff over the waters and it will part. And then in verse 18, we have it again. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through myself, for myself through Pharaoh and his army. We've heard from Pharaoh, we've heard from Moses, we've heard from the Israelites, and we've even heard from God. But nothing's happened. Not yet. And so now we get to our second half. Verses 19 to 31, the deliverance of the Lord. Again, night is approaching. Don't forget where we are. We're on the seashore, waiting. They're camped, and they're probably, while they see the Israelite, the Egyptians, sorry, they're, they're, they're packing everything and rushing around and, and sorting things into boxes to put on a cart. I, d- I don't know what they would have had. Night is approaching, and God has said he will save, and nothing has been done yet. The Egyptians are still there on the horizon. They haven't moved in. And that's probably because they are setting up formations. They, they want a quick victory. Egypt has not come to kill off all of the Israelites. That doesn't make sense with what we heard earlier from Pharaoh. He's sad about losing the Israelites. And so then if he goes and kills them, he still loses them. That doesn't make sense. No, he wants a quick victory. Maybe kill a few of them as an example, but herd them and then send them back to Egypt to be a workforce again. So they're probably setting up formations. They haven't moved in yet. And then, verse 19. The angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The angel of God. This great being, the the presence of God there on earth in the Old Testament. He goes and stands between the two peoples. 
And whether the Israelites can see him or not, I don't know. Whether the Egyptians can see him or not, I don't know. The angel of God shows himself to who he wants to be seen by and hides himself from who he doesn't. Go read Balaam and his donkey later on. That's a good example of it. But not only does the angel of the Lord go, but also the pillar of cloud goes and stands between the two nations. There's a Disney film of this Exodus story. Um, not the more recent one with um, Christian Bale. That's rubbish. No, I grew up watching this um, cartoon version. It's really good, fairly accurate as well, which says a lot. Um, And at this point in the story, what happens? The Egyptians are about to move in. The Israelites are are hemmed in. they They have nowhere to go. And then out of the heavens, the fiery pillar crashes into earth with a bang and sends fire everywhere. There's, there's fiery walls and the, the Egyptians' horses are terrified and all of this. It's very dramatic. We're not told that. We're told the pillar of cloud moves in behind them. And is darkness to one and light to the other. Less dramatic, but more effective. The Egyptians would eventually move around the fire. That's what happens in the film. The cloud, when it says darkness, does not mean, oh, it's a bit dark. It's the total darkness of the ninth plague. It covers them. It probably stops them from retreating. They can't see a thing. And so they're kept there, kind of like herded animals, just kept there for now until God is ready to use them. But while it brings darkness to one side, it brings light to the other. It is now night. And the Israelites need to see what is going on. And while this is going on, what's Moses doing? He stretches out his hand over the waters. He's probably waist deep, standing there, holding his staff out. And God uses an east wind to part the waters. Slowly. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a very slow process. God uses an east wind, that is a wind traveling from the east. And so the Israelites and the Egyptians are on the west bank of the Red Sea. So the first waters to part are the waters on the east bank. And you think, whoa, whoa, no, 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 they need to go now. So surely use a a western wind. God uses an eastern wind. And so the Israelites could watch pathway being formed in the sea coming towards them and the east wind is important but we'll get to that later and I want you to really think now I really want you to use your imaginations and you say no you can't use your imaginations with the bible you just use what's written there I'm not asking you to be heretical I'm not asking you to go against what the bible says but we have only so many facts but this really happened This really happened. The Israelites really saw this. And so I want you to try and put yourself in their shoes. And I say that because maybe you're a bit numb to this story like I was. I heard this growing up in Sunday school. I I read this in children's books. And so you kind of get to the point where you think, yeah, God parted the Red Sea. So what? Yeah, God um, fed the 5,000. Yeah, Jesus walked on water. Yeah, no, just what happens. You get used to it. You get numb to it. Use your imagination. What happens? The Israelites are watching Moses standing waist deep in the water, 
feeling this massive gust of wind hit them. And they're terrified, and they've packed up what they can carry, and they're waiting to see what's going on. There's, there's this bright light coming out of this cloud that's protecting them from the Egyptians, and they don't know what to do. And slowly they see this passage being formed in the water. And they think, that's odd, but not my immediate concern. And they turn and, and continue sorting their things. And then the passage opens. Then a breach is formed in the sea and it's getting wider. And what's going on? Still this east wind is almost throwing them aside. And they look and their Moses is standing on dry ground. Where a few moments ago he was in waist deep water. And Moses says, go. Move into the breach and it's dark because it's night remember but you get a bit of light from the cloud and you can imagine can't you the first Israelite is pushed forward he's chosen at random he's chucked forward you go first and see if the sea swept you away and so he kind of edges in a bit he gets 10 meters and he's still okay he goes 20 meters and and, and the water hasn't crushed him yet and he keeps going and he's fine And then everybody rushes in. And this is a wide chasm in the water, by the way. This is two million people, remember? And they're going through. And again, this east wind is still hitting them in the face, but head down and keep going. And it's really strange. What is going on? And it's night, so the stars are in the sky and they can look around and it's probably really serene and lovely on the side of the Red Sea at night. But they're going into this this wall, this walkway between the walls of water. And they keep going. And the sand and the mud, it's dry. What's going on? We should be sinking into this. And there's seaweed here and there. There's all this debris probably from old fishing vessels that they have to go around and rocks. And the thing with water is that it's very level on top. But for most bodies of water, the ground underneath goes down quite a bit. And so they're going downhill. And so this wall of water is rising, it seems, around them. And and they're going down and and the east wind is still hitting them in the face and they're getting hit with splashes from spray of the water or whatever. And there's nothing holding back these great bodies of water. There's no plexiglass, there's no glass, it's not an aquarium. They stick their hand in and it is wet. They walk down and, and, and again, they see less and less and less until all they see is the sky, the stars have disappeared, the moon is gone, they cannot see the horizon, they see a a small glimpse of something at the very end where they're heading, and they turn around and they see the bright light of the cloud, but it is dark. And it is cold. And they go down and down and down. And they are trusting God to hold back thousands of tons, maybe even millions of tons of water, that if that fell on them at that point, no, they wouldn't drown, they would be crushed. And they get to the bottom, and now the ground starts going up. And so now they're climbing, and it's harder work. And their animals are probably scared if they have any. And then at some point, we're not told when, God takes away the pillar of cloud. 
and the Egyptians. They're, they're finally able to see and their eyes have to adjust. And they're looking around. Where have the, where have the Israelites gone? And somebody sees them. They're walking between these two walls of water. What's going on? They've seen so much already. They've seen the ten plagues. But this? What's this? And Pharaoh sends his chariots and his horsemen down into the chasm. Because they're fastest, so they need to catch up with them. And they're going down, and then an Israelite turns, and they're almost there, and they see the, the Egyptians following after them, and now they start running. And they're running, and, and, and at some point, during the last watch of the night, this is between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., this has taken all night for them to walk across. I don't know how long it was, maybe 100 kilometers. I, don't, I didn't do the maths, don't worry. Do the maths later. Go and do the maths for me. But they've, they've walked all night, and now the Egyptians are chasing them. It's between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., and God looks down from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he throws them, God, is, God throws them into confusion. He jams their wheels. God suddenly makes the dry ground not so dry, and, and it clings to their wheels, and it clogs them, and, and people are thrown, and the horses, they're terrified. And then comes the key verse, verse 25. The Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Why is this the key verse? Why is this the key verse? Twice we're told in verses 4 and 18 that the Egyptians will know by experience that God is Lord but for what purpose? Well, twice we're told in those verses that it is so God will gain glory for himself. But what glory is that? What glory is that? Surely Egypt already knows that God is powerful and stronger than all of their mythology, all of their gods. That's the whole point of the ten plagues. With each plague, God targets a different god and destroys it. He completely destroys it. And so now Egypt knows this is, this is something else. This is not like anything we've got. God is powerful. This God is powerful. This God is almighty. And they've seen the breach in the sea. They know. So what glory is this? God sets all this up for his own glory. But that glory is not just that God is powerful and almighty and, and stronger than everything, anything they've ever seen. But what do the Egyptians say? God is fighting for the Israelites against the Egyptians. This glory is that God, the almighty, all-powerful one, fights for his People, his chosen people, his dearly loved people, the ones whom he would eventually die for. This isn't just some random God who, who just wants to destroy everything uh, and now they think they can get back at the Israelites because that God was over in Egypt so we're now free. No, this God is with his people. And fights for his people. The parting of the sea is so that his people can get from one side to the other in safety. 
God fights for those he loves. The Lord alone is the one who acts in this story. The Israelites indeed only had to stand and be still. And once the Egyptians realize this, God says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters will fall into place and the east wind stops. And why is the east wind important? Because the east wind, if it parted the seas on the eastern bank first, the waters that would first fall back into place are those on the western bank where the Egyptians are. And so those Egyptians, terrified there in the middle of this chasm, in the middle of the sea, are running back to safety in numbers with with Pharaoh. As they run, the waters fall into place and they run headlong into it. Millions of tons of water crushes them. The Lord saved his people in the face of of their doubt and their fear and their questioning. And this this passage is amazing. This passage is incredibly important to the rest of the Bible. uh, So many different passages point back to this um, time. They reference that God parted the Red Sea and brought his people across. But this story also points forward. Water in the Old Testament symbolizes chaos and death. Uh, it cannot be controlled. Like when you go fishing, you're very likely to die. It's a very dangerous thing. Water in the Old Testament is chaos and death. This is a real story, but it also symbolizes something. And so knowing that, if we break the story down into its very basic form, what do we have? God leads his people through death itself from an enemy who wants them from himself to safety and life on the other side. See which story this one's pointing to? The cross. That's the cross. That's the story of the cross. At the cross, Jesus dies in place of us. And for those that trust in Jesus, we are carried through death itself to be landed safe on the side of life. That's what happens at the cross. And so for the Christian, death is just a passageway. Death is just a doorway. When you die, you are led by Christ himself through death to be landed safe in life in heaven with him. But if you are not trusting in Jesus... If the Christians in the story are the Israelites, who are those that don't trust in Jesus? There's only other one people group, and that's the Egyptians. And the Egyptians don't make it through that valley that leads through death. They get caught in the middle of it. If you do not trust in Jesus, death is not a doorway. Death is not a passageway. Death is destruction. And that's terrifying to think about. But you're still here this morning. And while you have breath, while you are awake, while you are on this earth, Jesus has died for you. 
and asks you to trust in him and follow him. Will you? This is the God of the Bible. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that, as we've seen today, you are great and powerful and mighty. But Lord, you fight for your people. And if we are yours, we are safe from death itself. For Christ has died for sinners such as us. Lord, if we are not yours, would we be terrified? But Lord, would we not just stay in our fear, but would we run to the arms of our Saviour? Would we put our trust in Jesus? And may we all here today leave this place saying, death will only be a passageway for us. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.